We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Alrighty, our passage this morning is from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Again, Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, saints of Emmaus and visitors. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day. I see a lot of visitors uh, here today, so let me extend a welcome to you. 
Uh, I'm one of the pastors. My name is Joseph. Uh, it's a joy to see you. Uh, if you haven't yet, stop by our Connect table in the lobby. We'd love to connect with you and even give a gift to you. I believe it's still a mug. Um, if not, then I will give you a mug. Um, also visit emmauskc.com forward slash connect, and there you'll be able to fill out a digital connect card and sign up for our weekly announcements that go out on Mondays. Um, today we, we continue our series uh, on the attributes of God, and um, so for you visitors, normally we, we just walk through a passage of the Bible, and uh, that's how we spend our time in the Lord's Day. But we want to take a special time uh, each year to devote uh, for some doctrinal preaching. And so last week we covered divine incomprehensibility, that God is incomprehensible yet knowable because he has revealed himself in his graciousness. And this week we're looking at uh, the perfection of divine aseity. And uh, silly me chose this one of all, one, because I've, this is one of my favorites, but it's also probably one of the more complex ones of the perfections. So you have your thinking caps, right? Put those on. Uh, we do some heavy lifting this morning. In his book, Overcoming Apathy, Yuki Enazor explores our culture's pervasiveness of apathy. That is, our indifference or numbness to the meaningful and the substantial things in this life. Begins this exploration through the lens of the famous television series, Seinfeld. If you're anything like me, Seinfeld is a beloved show, one that I watch uh, very frequently. Sometimes it's even on the background during, uh, during reading a book or something. However, Enazor po uh, points out a, a pretty harrowing aspect of this show. You see, Seinfeld is famously a show about nothing. This is literally their pitch to the executives of NBC. There's no plot, there's no storyline, and the characters really don't have any growth arcs. They're just there. He says, it's a show that normalized indifference towards big, meaningful things, such as marriage or family, religion or social concern, and a fixation on life's daily minutia, like getting a good parking spot, ordering Chinese food, the annoyance of close talkers, or maintaining one's high score in Frogger. Indifference was the name of the game. Now, we could take a, a positive spin on this and say something like uh, the joy and significance of the little things in life is what Seinfeld is trying to communicate. However, as much as I want that to be true, Seinfeld is but a small manifestation of the rest of our culture's fascination over the inconsequential and disinterest in the substantial. Our attitudes have been on a steady diet of this posture and have been nurtured more towards indifference. And as Orr says, for too many of us, life feels like a show about nothing. It feels unworthy of our serious attention. We are citizens of a Seinfeldian society where only inconsequential things matter. We are numb to the meaningful, but often alive to the trivial. However, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we've been made alive from and through and to the most consequential being, God, the self-existent one. Our attention and affections are captured by God most high, who dwells in eternity. So I want to center our time this morning in Exodus 3 and kind of jumping all over the Bible, 
because God gives Moses meaning to his name, and it's unlike any other name. Since Genesis 5, people had called upon Yahweh, so Moses knew the name, but didn't really know what it meant. This name can be translated, as your ESV Bible is there, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or as the Greek translation puts it, I am the one who is. But what occasioned God's self-revelation, and why this name? God tells Moses in verses 7 through 10 that he sees the affliction and suffering of his people and is going to redeem them through Moses. Before God brings his people out of bondage, though, they need some source of strength, some reason to hope, which is why Moses is kind of freaking out, right? Let alone the burning bush that's not actually being consumed. Who is Moses to tell Pharaoh that the Israelites are to be released? He'll die for that sort of request. Nevertheless, God assures and comforts Moses that he will be with him, just as he has been with them for generations. Thus, Israel's reason to hope and source of strength is God himself, who reveals his perfect self-existence. In Exodus 3.11, Moses says, Who am I? God says, I am. His sufficiency meets the insufficiency of his servants to accomplish his purpose. Now, this divine name carries manifold perfections. As the psalmist in 145 says that God's greatness is unsearchable. What I want to contemplate this morning is God's self-existence, what we might also refer to as God's aseity. Now, I'll be using the term aseity and the phrase he is interchangeably, because that's what aseity means. Now, as I said earlier, aseity might be the most complex perfection of God for a number of reasons, namely because we're thinking about God's self-existence. And aseity gives a logical basis for the rest of the perfections of God, right? God is incomprehensible because he is. God is infinite because he is. God is immutable because he is. We are being brought up into the holy of holies, as it were, through Christ, our mediator, and the spirit, our sanctifier. Indeed, Aseity is the starting point for the sinner's worship or denial of God. Here, Psalm 53.1. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The wise person, though, recognizes his creatureliness and depends on God. We are derived and dependent beings. That is, not only are we needy of God, but our very existence comes from God. We are derived Thus, in that sort of existence, we meditate on the one who is existence itself. So this morning, I want to work through divine aseity in four parts. And they'll each be on the screen behind me. Self-existence, trinity, independence, and plentitude of life. Self-existence, trinity, independence, and plentitude of life. And I want to do so in the posture of what Pastor Matthew talked about last week concerning both God's incomprehensibility and his knowability. So in the spirit of faith-seeking understanding or fear and confidence. But before we get there, five brief introductory comments on Scripture's language of God. So we have four parts of aseity. Before we get there, five introductory comments. This is important to see how Scripture speaks of God. Since in the Christian life, we begin with God and never move on to another subject, because he is. 
in the Christian life, we begin with God and never move on to another subject because he is. Okay, five introductory comments. The questions we're asking is, what is it and how do we define it? It being the essence of God. Well, we don't really know what God is, only that he is. Unlike things of creation, we don't have a category to place him in and distinguish him. He transcends class, right? This is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Or Isaiah, right? To whom will you compare me? He dwells in unapproachable light, but he even transcends our conception of light. Now, a lot of this next section, or these introductory comments I owe to Scott Swain, a theologian in Florida, who's actually really distilling an older theologian, Peter von Maastricht's thought. First, uh, introductory comment. When Scripture speaks of God, it is in the superlative way. When Scripture speaks of God, it is in the superlative way. Scripture does this because he dwells in eternity the High and the Holy One, right? Genesis 4.18 says, Most High God. Deuteronomy 10.17, Psalm 95. He's the God of all gods. He's above them all. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Right? In that, in that, in that verse there, you have uh, the language of extolling, or blessing, or praising, and thanking the Lord. Psalm 150, praise him according to his excellent greatness. You see the emphatic adjective there, excellent greatness. Micah 7, who is a God like you, abundant in steadfast love? Romans 11, oh, the depth, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Ephesians 3, to him, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, and beyond all that we think and ask. 1 Timothy 6, blessed and only sovereign God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture speaks of God in the superlative degree. Second, while we may use excessive or exaggerated language to describe like how good, how incredibly good Joe's KC Barbecue is, or how fantastic Town Topics Burgers are. You can be wrong about those things. That's okay. Scripture's language about God is no exaggeration. Scripture speaks of God in this way because he is worthy of that kind of speech. He deserves to be praised and spoken of in this way. That is, the superlative way. Third, God's greatness is unsearchable. So even though this is, this is the way, the superlative way of speaking of God, it's still unsearchable. Use your best words, and his greatness is still unsearchable. While scripture's words are no exaggeration, they still don't exhaust God himself. All right, this is Nehemiah 9, right? God is beyond all praising. Right? You, you gather up all of our praise, put it all together, and he's still beyond that. Fourth, 
Scripture praises God's supreme being and agency as our end. Scripture praises God's supreme being and agency as our end. All right, take this from Hebrews 11.6. God is the object of our faith, and he is the rewarder of our faith. And therefore, he is the great good. All topics, then, are thought of rightly when it is thought of to be from and through to God. Fifth, so in this, in this superlative way, this kind of big category, you then have uh, two, two subcategories, if you will. Way of affirmation, way of negation, or positive language about God and negative language about God. So examples, God exists. God acts. God is powerful. God is king. I see that, those positive uh, attributions. Or the way of negation, God is infinite or immutable or incomprehensible. God is not finite. God is not comprehensible. So within that superlative category, you have way of affirmation and way of negation, ways of speaking of God. What we're after this morning is a little bit of both. However, there's an order, at least logically from Scripture's speech about God. In contemplating God's aseity, we're affirming both his self-existence and his independence. We're affirming both his plentitude of life and his utter uniqueness. We're affirming his triune being and his infinitude. God is independent, unique, and infinite because... He is. Okay. I know those were really brief, but I had to get through them quickly. Now on to the four parts of divine aseity. First, self-existence. Here, Augustine, God's very nature is to be. And so true is that, when compared with him, all things, all created things, are as though they had no being. God is true being unchangeable being, and this can be said of him alone. He is being, and as he is, he's also goodness, the good of all things, right? It's very Hebrews eleven six. We, as human beings, define and identify ourselves via relationship with and to others. But with God, there's no class. There's no genius. There's nothing to compare him with to sort of Define him. He says, though, to Moses, I am who I am. Here, Augustine again. God, above whom there is nothing, outside whom there is nothing, and apart from whom there is nothing. He is supreme life, supreme truth, supreme blessedness, supreme wisdom, and supreme being. Now, divine aseity, it's the perfection that we're considering this morning, comes from the Latin... Ase, so that's the letter A space S E, Ase, and this just means of oneself or from oneself. So the question then can be asked this way: What does it mean for God to be of Himself, or what does it mean for God to be of Himself? God is in the most pure and absolute sense; He is the pure absolute being. God is, God is his very own existence and understanding. 
so is he his own life, and therefore he so lives. Right? So this is, this is another way of saying what the biblical text would say, the living God. The divine name was given to God, or given by God, to demonstrate his essence. He is the being in whom there is no becoming. Bobbing says it this way, God is exclusively from himself, not in the sense of being self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity who he is. Being and not becoming. Now, Pastor Tyler will talk more about this next week on divine immutability. But because God is, he is timelessly and perfectly who he is. There is nothing in God that he lacks or is in need of. This is, this is the meat, if you will, of divine aseity. His fullness of being, plentitude of life, his self-existence is absolute. So God is life in himself in the most excellent manner. Okay, you see that sort of tripling superlative language there? God is life in himself in the most excellent manner. Now this part, this next part is really important. So another thinking cap. In God, essence and existence are inseparable. The life of God belongs intimately to what God is. Essence and existence are the same in God. Now, this might be new for some of you and reasonably difficult to grasp. I'm right there with you. However, listen to an old theologian, Benedict Petit, who highlights the difference between God and creatures, saying, the life of creatures is distinct from the creatures themselves. But the life of God is the very essence of God. The life of creatures is distinct from the creatures themselves. But the life of God is the very essence of God. God is his own life. Whereas with us creatures, everything that we are, do, say, think, everything that we are is given to us. Our essence and our existence. As God is the self-existent being, he is then qualitatively different from creation. Right? So as Pastor Matthew talked about last week, he's, he's not just a, a bigger version of ourselves. But he is qualitatively different. It's because of his very essence that prevents him from changing or moving via or on account of an external force. This doesn't mean that he is then inactive or immobile or inaccessible. Rather, he is, because he is, right? He is, he is most alive. He is the liveliest being, the living God. He is the fountain of life. Now, a brief note on divine, or divine simplicity to help clarify this talk of essence and existence. God, the, the divine simplicity is just saying this. God is without body, parts, passions, or form. He is not composed, if you will, because he is perfect spirit. He is then incorruptible, indivisible, and immortal. In God, essence and existence are one and the same. Here, Peter von Maastricht again, noting the non-difference between God's essence and his existence. The distinction is in our conception, because we are finite, compounded beings 
who can think of one thing and not another thing. Let me say that again. The distinction is in our conception, because we are finite, compounded, composed beings who can think of one thing and not another thing. Creatures, then, are unstable and composite. Okay, so two examples to further clarify this. Negative example, um, think of like a multi-linked contract or a multi-parted product or um, like a house of cards, right, if you will. The, the more parts of a contract you have, the easier it is then to break, right? When you're composing a contract, you don't want this long, expansive thing. You want it concise, short, and to the point. You don't want a lot of parts because it's easier to break, right? This is James even. Right? A double-minded man is unstable. Sort of like, you know, have one foot in one, one, one boat, another foot in another. It's kind of hard to stabilize yourself because you're, you're double-minded. That's, that's what is getting at the essence, the whatness of creatures. We're unstable. Now, a positive example, God, and most of you will not be surprised to learn this, is coffee. I get teased often for my love of coffee, and uh, rightly so. It's fine. Now, in coffee, or you can think of wine, if you, if you like wine, too. Um, coffee and wine have what we call notes, if you will. Now, notes are not things added to the coffee or wine. They're not flavors uh, imported into the substance of coffee. Rather, the notes are the things tasted, right? The notes are just the coffee. In a similar way, Every one of God's attributes is just God. But God's attributes are distinct by way of our conception and speech. In God, they are one in essence. Another example. Think of, think of a prism, okay? Uh, think of a singular beam of light, right? And if that light hits the prism, what's going to happen on the other side? It's going to be refracted in an array of colors. Right? You see this? This is basically what a rainbow is, right? So in, this, in a similar way... We creatures are on the side of this multi-arrayed product of the, the one singular light shining through the prism. Okay, I hope those examples were helpful as we, as we continue on. Just know that, one, God is distinct from creatures because he is life. Second, there's a triune shape to God's self-existence. So given divine simplicity and aseity, Aseity then takes shape in the eternal relations of origin. You might remember this terminology from our Trinity series last summer, but uh, this phrase, eternal relations of origin, we're simply distinguishing the persons of the Godhead. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father through the Son. Now, again, remember our earlier distinctions about scriptural language, superlative, Affirmative and negative. Now certainly, God is independent of creation. But this is constituted by the very life of God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. You can say it this way. The triune God is Ase, or the Ase God is triune. Now with, as, with any aspect of, of Trinitarian theology, two things must be distinguished. Okay? Who God is in himself, without reference to creation and God's activity in creation. Those two must be properly distinguished. They're not, 
Now, we're not talking about two trinities or something silly like that. What we're talking about is our conception and knowledge of God, right? So we're distinguishing who God is in himself without relation to creation and God's activity within creation. The inner life, fullness, and perfection of God constitutes his perfect works in creation and reconciliation. Seity, then, should be understood essentially or by way of essence or by way of what God is, not merely by his outward acts in creation. The eternal blessed life of God exists in Father generating Son, the Son being generated by the Father, and the Spirit proceeding from the Father through the Son. This principle allows the Vinaseity then to be conceptualized or understood as life or his self-existence positively and independence secondarily. In other words, God would still be God if there was no creation. God would still be God if there was no creation. And this is, this is really what Jesus is expressing in his high priestly prayer, right? In John 17, 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glory and love and perfection of God's life is Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the glory of God's life, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, we're confessing the same truth as John 5.26 when we say that the Son is eternally generated by the Father. God's having life in himself, or God's self-existence, just is Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no fourth thing in God, or something silly like that. No, each person is the divine nature, and this divine nature subsists in three persons. God's self-existence is triune. Liam Gallagher, a pastor in, in Philadelphia, clar clarifies it this way. All this begetting and being begotten and proceeding points to the eternal life and movement that is intrinsic to God's eternal nature. To have life in himself means that God lives in a way that is essentially active and self-giving. Right? This is the living God. So the Father loves and glorifies the Son as the Son loves and glorifies the Father in the Holy Spirit as Father, Son, and Spirit inseparably love and will glorify his church. It's the beautiful mystery of the Trinity. In his absolute self-existence, he is incomprehensible yet knowable. He is inaccessible yet imminent or close or near. He is indescribable. He is self-revealing. In his pure, self-existent activity as Father, Son, and Spirit, there is no shadow of change. There is no beginning or end. He is timeless and immutable. God is then referenced as a fountain because he is the source of life by whom we live and move and have our being. Creaturely life, our life, is a borrowed life from the all life of God. So then, as society takes the shape of eternal relations of origin, this fountain of life is fundamentally Trinitarian. Third, independent creator. God doesn't need you. Aseity is fundamental to God, as he is altogether different from the idols and creation. The living God is from eternity and upholds the world by the word of his power. This is what compels Moses' song in Exodus 15:11, right? <laughs> who among you, or who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? 
I am who I am is the incomprehensible and incomparable one. There is no one like him in holiness and glory. God is independent in all that he is and does because he is. The blessed and holy life of the Trinity is, is full. It is full of glory and life. Theologians often call it the ocean of being. He is full of life. By his own nature, as the fountain of life then, he gives us eternal life in the fullness of grace and truth. We can say then, for his pleasure, all things are and were created. Yet, nothing he created adds value to him. Right? This is Job 22. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely, he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it any gain to him if you make your ways blameless? So one of the most important things we have to get right is the creator-creature distinction. The psalmist in 53.1 says, The fool says in his heart that there is no God, but the righteous one. The righteous one is planted by streams of water, confessing with you is the fountain of being. The fool denies his creatureliness, but the righteous adheres to the first commandment, confessing the creator's timeless existence. Now, a few passages to demonstrate these things. Psalm 104, 27 through 30, talking about the creation's dependence on God. These all look to you to give them food in their due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. Psalm 36.9 With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 93, talking about the world's stability. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Hear this. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The establishment of the world is, is, is because there is a throne established of old. Acts 17. Now, Pastor, Pastor Matthew will preach on this text uh, later in August. As we continue our our series in Acts, but let us suffice it here to say that God is not served by human hands as if he was needy. He does not depend on human worship or sacrifice, nor is he to be confused with creation. Why? Because he is. Romans 11. Question. Who has taught the Lord anything? Who has given him a gift that he should be repaid? Answer. No one. Psalm 23 and 34, right? 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is only in God's life that we have no lack. No lack because he didn't get his life from anyone else. Where else are we going to run to? There's no one else who is, who is independent, who is life itself, that we can run to and find refuge. Right? The, long, the young lions 
suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. God is not contingent on anything or anyone outside of himself. He does not need us to give him anything. He is free from all coercion or constraint, free to act according to his own good pleasure. In utter freedom, God created the world, and he did this not because he lacked anything or needed anything. God's existence is absolute and underived. He did not cause himself, nor did he create the universe out of any form of necessity, as if he were diminished without it or enhanced by it. He created the world simply because he is, and he is good. Fourth, plentitude of life is the source and cause of all things. Here, John of Damascus, being himself very light and goodness and life and essence, inasmuch as he does not derive his being from another, that is to say, of those things that exist, but being himself the fountain of all being that is, of all life to the living, of all reason to those who have reason, to the cause of all good. In other words, because God is self-existent and independent, the praise and adoration, and worship, and time, and finances we give unto God are really just his to begin with. All that we are and have and give are from the Lord Almighty. Right? This is why the psalmist has been compelled to say, let everyone that hath breath praise the Lord. Down to our very breath of existence should we devote our praise and adoration to him. This, this is the difference between the wise and the fool. The fool denies God's existence and his own creatureliness. Remember Proverbs 9 concerning Lady Wisdom and Folly. The path of Lady Wisdom is counter to what seems obvious. Right? The path of Lady Wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom, then, knows God as God exists. That is, as the one who exists, who exists in and through himself. The wise person knows herself to be created. She sees herself as a participator in the divine existence itself, dependent on God, who is self-existent. In other words, the more that we grow in our creatureliness, dependency, the more we are situated to imitate God in Christ. Indeed, the more we desire to do so. God's name in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, instructs us both on God's nature, right, his self-existence, and our participation in God as creatures. God's self-naming here in Exodus 3.14 is a boundless fountain of hope and strength and salvation and trust for he is. It is appropriate that God gave this name to Moses. There is a reason then why John picks this up right from Jesus' I am sayings. Jesus declares, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' teachings also articulate the manner of our participation in God because he's teaching that in his life do we see light and receive love. Jesus, the one who is, is the bread of life. Jesus, the one who is, is the light of the world. Jesus, the one who is, is the door unto life of God. Jesus, the one who is, is the good shepherd. Jesus, the one who is, is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the one who is, is the way, truth, and the life. And Jesus, the one who is, is the true vine. Now, we've covered a lot this morning, this word today. And if you feel somewhat mentally exhausted and yet renewed, it's exactly what divine society should do.
I mean, after all, we're thinking about God himself. So there should be a holy exhaustion and renewal after thinking about the infinite and finite ways. God's self-existence and transcendence is what makes communication and, and uh, his imminence, his nearness with us possible because there's no loss or impairment to God. If he were not distinct, we couldn't have any genuine relationship with him. The God who is self-existent is the same God who acts in redemptive history and keeps his covenant to the thousand generation. He keeps covenant because he is. All his ways are good because he is. He redeems fallen humans because he is. And he will make all things new because he is. And this is faith, right? This is faith, confidence that God will do as he has promised because he is. And because there is no rock like our God. I just have two pastoral charges for us this morning. One for the Christian and one for the non-Christian. Christian, behold the glory of the self-existent one in the face of Jesus Christ, in whom was life and in whose life is the light of men. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hear this, Christian. You are in his kingdom of light. You are. It is presently true of you. You are hidden with Christ in the heavenly places. And therefore, sin and death and the assault of hell have no reign over you. So you can come and, and worship and, and fellowship with the one who is life in himself, who doesn't need you, but actually welcomes you to his kingdom, to feast and to dine with him forevermore. Non-Christian, let me plead with you not to be the fool in Psalm 53.1. You may or may not be the one who is intellectually denying God's existence, but your life says otherwise. Sin and death are your masters. Don't let today pass by with you still denying your dependence on God and your, de your dependence on his saving grace. Come to Jesus, the light of life, who gives you life forevermore. Let me pray Psalm 145 to close us. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.